Okay, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. If you've not met me, my name is Stuart. I'm the leader of the church here. Very warm welcome to you. If you have a Bible, could you please go to Mark chapter 14? Mark chapter 14. We will pick up there momentarily. Mark chapter 14. Now, I don't know if you're um, a TV or a movie fan. I love to watch TVs and movies um, to relax. It's just one of those things I do. And um, one of the types of television and movies that I like to watch is the courtroom drama. I love the dramatic moments there, the reveals, the witness for the prosecution, the witness for the defense, the ruling of the judge. And, and the dramatic tension when there's usually a big revelation towards the end and then either the bad guy's found guilty, the good guy is found innocent and goes free. And over the years I've watched, this dates me, but I'm going to say it anyway, Perry Mason, anyone? L.A. Law, used to love that. Matlock, Judge John Deed, all those. But my favorite, my absolute favorite is a movie, a courtroom movie called A Few good men. If you haven't seen it, please watch it. It is awesome. For some of you, make sure you're old enough um, because there is a rating on it. But it is brilliant. It is so dramatic. There's the, they're trying to find out, get to the truth. There's, there's Tom Cruise is in it. Jack Nicholson is in it. Demi Moore's in it. And there's that really fantastic bit at the end where it says, you want answers. And he says, I want the truth. And then he says the great line, you can't handle the truth. And then, I won't spoil it, but there's wonderful, dramatic revelation at the end. And so I love the courtroom drama for that. And courtrooms have a judge. They have someone speaking for the prosecution, someone speaking for the defense. They have witnesses that come in that give their testimony. And sometimes they are true witnesses. And sometimes they are dodgy, false witnesses lying about something that's going on, maybe to save themselves or to save others. And in the end, a final judgment is made. Is that person guilty or is that person innocent in whatever they have been accused of? And what we're going to look at in today's passage is a tale of two trials. A tale of two trials. There's going to be two trials in this passage as we go through. And we are nearing the end of Mark's gospel. We've been going through the whole thing as a church. We began last uh, September. We are now in chapter 14, and we're right at the end of chapter 14. And so far, we've seen uh, that the religious leaders in Jerusalem are planning to kill Jesus. Jesus is the one who's come. He is God the Son. He is the Messiah, the chosen one of Israel, and he has come to save his people. And the religious leaders based in the temple in Jerusalem do not like him. They want to kill him. We've seen Jesus' body being anointed by the unnamed woman, ready for burial. So there's foreshadowing. They know what's coming. Jesus is going to die. He knows what he's going to die. We've had Judas agreeing to betray Jesus. We've had the Last Supper, where Jesus gathers his disciples, inaugurates a new covenant with the bread and the wine. But in that, he knows that someone's going to betray him. But he also says that his disciples are going to leave him. And particularly one of them, Peter, is even going to deny him. And then we have the prayers in Gethsemane, where Jesus prays with his disciples. He said, come pray with me. And he's, he's dealing with the anguish of knowing what's coming, his death on the cross and all that that means. But the disciples fail him there. They keep falling asleep. He keeps trying to wake them up and say, pray with me. And we don't. And, so, and then that passage finishes with Jesus being arrested. 
Judas the betrayer comes, identifies Jesus. He's arrested. All the disciples flee. And we're now on to the next section. So I'm just going to read this to you. You've got the slides on the, the scene behind. Uh, let's read this together. Follow along. Starting at verse 30, uh, 53. It says, And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and striking, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the cock crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately... The cock crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down, and he wept. Okay, big idea this morning. When it comes to Jesus, we can either be a true witness or a false witness. When it comes to Jesus, we can either be a true witness or a false witness. I said earlier, this is the story of true trials. We have Jesus on trial, and we also have Peter on trial, and Mark has put them together for us to see the contrast between them. Both of them are put under scrutiny, both of them are to bear witness, and one of them is faithful, and one of them is not. Another subtle reminder from Mark that we've seen all through his gospel that true witness, true service, true discipleship comes in the context of persecution and suffering. And even in that first section of, um, of the passage we looked, look for the words testimony, testify, witness, and variations of They come up again and again. It's all about being a witness. And are you going to be a true witness or a false witness? So let's look at the first trial, which is Jesus versus the Sanhedrin. Jesus versus the Sanhedrin. So let's just go through the passage together. Verse 53. Jesus has been arrested 
He is then led to the high priest who is um, the leader of the Jewish ruling council, which is the Sanhedrin. And it describes him as the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. They are the representatives. They make up three bodies that make up the Jewish ruling council. And he, Jesus is then brought before them. And they are the ones who've been seeking to kill him for quite a while in the gospel. So they've finally got their man. And the high priest is there as a representative of the highest authority for the Jewish people on earth. He's the religious leader, political and uh, legal power as well. So he is the ultimate authority in the Jewish state. And they have finally got Jesus. Then Mark then just slips in a little bit about Peter. And Mark's doing one of these sandwich techniques, which we've seen before, where he breaks up the narrative with something before, something after, and then we have a middle. So he's mentioned Peter who's going to deal with in just a moment, and he describes him as following him at a distance. Prophetic foreshadowing there. And Peter then comes in to where Jesus is. Jesus has been taken to the house of the high priest. Uh, the high priest would have had a big courtyard, big courtyard with uh, rooms round it, and in the middle the servants would have been, and people could have just come in through the gateway there. So Peter goes there. It was obviously a cold night, and there were guards there, so they would have been the people who would have arrested Jesus. There was a big crowd who went after him, and they were armed. So Peter was kind of snuck in with them. He's in the fire, trying to be inconspicuous, warms his hands there. Then it moves back to Jesus who was in the, having a trial upstairs. And this trial, I want to be very clear, is a sham trial. It is a trial of sorts, but it is still a sham trial. When I was at university, I lived with a guy called Mark in my final year, and he was a law student while I was studying teaching, and we both had to write our dissertations uh, at the same time. And his dissertation was on the, fi- uh, the legal irregularities of Jesus' trial. All the laws that were broken through that. And so actually, even in this trial, and they're trying to put Jesus to death, they're actually breaking their own laws as they do it. The fact that the proceedings are happening at night is against Jewish law. Um, the, the charge of blasphemy required witnesses, which they couldn't find. We've seen from the text. They couldn't actually, didn't have the authority to um, discharge capital punishment And even if they had, before we go back to the Old Testament, they had to wait a day to deliberate it. So they couldn't just do it in one night. And so all this thing, you can tell there is a a trial happening here, but it's a trial in name only. They've already decided the verdict. They know what's coming. They want to kill this Jesus. The reason behind this was they, they had a vendetta against him, and they wanted to get it done and dusted before the Passover festival, which we know is coming, because Jesus celebrated it uh, with his disciples, and so they were going to have holidays. Uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread immediately followed it, and so they wanted it out the way now. And so they were just going to railroad the trial and have it all decided. And we see that the whole council are in on this. So there's, there is complicity from everyone involved in the Jewish kind of leadership of the faith there. And they try to find testimony against Jesus. They, need, they know they need some witnesses, but it says they found none. They found no witnesses. So what do they resort to? Verses 56 to 59, they resort to false witnesses. So they bring people up who are willing to lie, make stuff up about Jesus, but in their ham-handed way of doing it, they can't even get their false witnesses to agree and under old testament law if you were going to have a capital crime a capital punishment you had to have multiple witnesses and they had to agree on what they were saying and these ones didn't agree so they'd got guys to come in and tell stuff about jesus but they hadn't coached them enough to actually make sure the lies add up and so even the witnesses who were speaking lies against jesus were contradicting each other they will not stick he is innocent 
And then they come up, the only charge they can come up with is this one where it says, I'll destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build it. And Jesus has spoken about this in Mark chapter 13. We saw about when he prophesied the destruction of the temple that would happen in AD 70 when the Romans flattened Jerusalem um, in response to a rebellion there. But Jesus wasn't talking about rebuilding a human temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. He was going to become the temple. And people would find their find the presence of God in him and not that place. And this is accounted for in both Matthew and John's gospel. And he's talking about that. But even in that, they, can't, they couldn't get themselves to agree on what actually he was saying and when he was saying it. But we know Jesus was doing that. And so then we have all these false witnesses. And in the midst of it, we have one true witness, which is Jesus. The high priest directly asks him, gets him to testify and it says he remained silent which is Jesus fulfilling the prophetic word from Isaiah way back in the Old Testament where it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers he opened not his mouth so there is Jesus not speaking all this stuff's coming at him people and telling horrible lies about him and he is just remaining silent in that until there's one moment when the high priest directly asks him. He asks him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? The Christ meaning a Messiah, anointed one. We've seen this come throughout the gospel. Jesus is the chosen one sent from God. The blessed one is a, a likely a reference to them not wanting to use the name of God. The name of God was revered as holy and so it wasn't spoken And it was referred to, and so the blessed one is a way of referring to God without actually saying. And the literal meaning of it is God's son. So are you the Messiah, God's son, effectively what he's saying. And I read in one of the commentaries, the language used here, we read a translation in English, but the original language was, it wasn't so much a question, it was a statement with an implied question. So the high priest is effectively saying to Jesus, you are the Christ, you are God's son. To which Jesus then responds to that, finally, something true. And what does he say? I am. I am that. I am those things. And the irony here, we need to see the irony that Mark's put out there, is that you've got the one who's trying to kill him, the high priest, is the one who's saying who he actually is. There aren't many revelations in Mark of people identifying who Christ is. And we've got one of his enemies doing it. The next one that's going to happen is the guy who kills him. The centurion on the cross who who sees Jesus die and says, surely this man was the son of God. And so the irony is the people who actually know who he is are the ones who are his enemies, although they don't know who he is, even though they're identifying him as he is. And so he says, you are the Christ. You are God's son. Jesus says, I am which is a reference to Exodus 3, where God revealed his name to Moses in the burning bush. So Jesus is effectively saying, you know that? I am, I am. I am that one. Yes, I am the one who you think I am, the one who is the Son of God. And he uses this image. He says, you see the Son of Man. And that is a way Jesus referred to himself. And that is referring back to Old Testament prophecy for Daniel as the one who was going to be the one with all power and authority, who would usher in a future kingdom of God's people. So Jesus is saying, yes, I am the one who's always been. I am the one who is to come, and I am the one who's going to usher in a future kingdom for God's people. I am the Lord uh, Almighty in that sense. And the response of the high priest It says, I love the drama of this. This would make a great courtroom moment. He ripped his garments 
tore his garments, which was a sign of great dismay. Um, despite the high priest identifying who Jesus was, and Jesus saying, yep, that's right. He then freaks out at the response. He rips his garments, which has precedent uh, previously in Scripture. We've seen it. And Jesus' words prompt the charge of blasphemy. Now, it would be blasphemy from the words of Jesus if it wasn't true. It wasn't true. And so the high priest who's identified this person who he is now accuses him of blasphemy. And the only one who's speaking the truth is Jesus saying, yes, I am. That's who I am. I am the one that you've identified who it is. And so they, he responds and he says, it's clear this man is blaspheming. What did you see? He says, they all condemned him as deserving death. That was the, the punishment for blasphemy, if it was blasphemy. But Jesus actually is speaking truth. He is the one true witness in this whole thing. And so they pass the sentence of death on Jesus and then immediately break all sorts of laws by beating him and spitting on him and, and mocking him and treating him incredibly shamefully, which is another fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah where it says in Isaiah 50 verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. One commentator wrote this about the trial. They said, Mark's trial is profoundly ironic. The Sanhedrin stands on the law and Jesus sits in the dock, but in reality, the Sanhedrin breaks the law and Jesus upholds it. The testimony that the Sanhedrin seek against Jesus in the end, not provided by false witnesses, but by Jesus himself in the claim to be God's son. Jesus stands on trial before the Sanhedrin, but the Sanhedrin will stand on trial before the Son of Man when he returns in glory. The Sanhedrin makes a charade of Jesus' ability to prophesy, but his prophecies all come true. Above all, it is the high priest, not Jesus, who blasphemes because Jesus is God's Son. And so that's the first trial there, the trial of Jesus versus the Sanhedrin. Now let's move on to the second trial, which is Peter versus the servant girl. Now, this is a different kind of trial, not so formalized, but it is a trial nonetheless. And we have seen Jesus as a true witness. We now see Peter as a false witness. And so it begins. So Peter is below in the courtyard. What this would mean is the courtyard of the high priest's house, a large open area. The house would be behind and it would be multi-story. And so Jesus' trial is obviously taking place kind of above that in an upper chamber, an upper room. And that would have had open kind of windows out looking down onto the courtyard. So Peter is below with the people who were milling about, probably the crowd who went to kind of arrest Jesus. Some of the servants are there while Jesus is upstairs with the Sanhedrin uh, and the having his trial and there would have been soldiers and the like there. And so that's, what, so that's what's happening. So Peter is proximity pretty close and he's warming himself by the fire because it would have been cold and then a servant girl, of which they said there were several, one of them, who was a servant to the high priest, sees Peter in the crowd and she looked at him. So there was something about him. I know that face. Where have I seen that face before? And he says, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. And so what we've got in here in this trial, Peter is the only one identified 
by name. So the focus is all on him. And this woman calls him out and says, you are with the Nazarene Jesus. Jesus is from Nazareth. And he points it out. And does Peter, despite being trying to be inconspicuous, I just want to blend in to all these other folks, suddenly becomes the center of attention. And this woman directly accuses him. You can see the courtroom imagery here. He is now the accused. He's now in the dock. And someone is coming to him and saying, I know you. You were with Jesus. But Peter's denial is emphatic. He says, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He, cl- he claims, I don't know Jesus, and then he claims ignorance. So who are you talking about? As if, like, they've just arrested this guy, dragged him in. He's upstairs with the whole ruling council of the faith. There's a trial going on, and Peter's going, I don't know who you, I don't know who you mean. What's going on? It's ridiculous, but that's what he does. He says, I don't know, and I don't understand what you mean. And then it says, he moves out through the gateway, which is probably in the entrance he came in. And so he is symbolically moving away from Jesus. He was in the courtyard by the fire where it was warm. Jesus was upstairs in some upper chamber Jesus, Peter says, no, I don't know him, and then moves further away. What he's feeling in his heart and what's coming out of his mouth is now acting out physically in his actions. And then Mark adds that the rooster crows. We know what's coming because we've read the previous chapters and sections of Mark And so Peter's first denial. And then he goes and we have his second and third denial pushed together. A change of place did not lead to a change of heart with Peter. He moves himself. He gets out the way. I want to get away from this girl. She's a problem. I'll go out. But his heart hasn't been touched. And the girl is persistent. And what does she do? As in a trial, she marshals witnesses. It says she gets the bystanders. She's saying, you must know Jesus. He says no, moves away. And she starts getting others. Look, look at him. He must be one of those Jesus people. He's with Jesus, isn't he? He's got, got um, witnesses and others. You can imagine going, oh, he's with Jesus. And so what does Peter do? He says, but again, he denied it. He denied it. And the language used there isn't just a simple denial. Commentators tell us he actually, it, what it meant is the language, I mean, he would have gone into an extensive denial. Not just, I don't know him. He would have tried to justify not knowing him. So like he's already said, I don't know or understand. There would have been an extensive, and that's significant because one, the denial is emphatic, but two, that leads to the next problem where they point him out and say, you have to be one of them because you're a Galilean. You're from up north and your accent gives you away. And so it's like by your denial, you've just dug the hole deeper because they say, clearly, you're not from around here. You're not, from, you're not one of the city folk. You're from up there, up country. And so Jesus, he's now exposed because you're a Galilean. And we can tell by the way you speak. To which then Peter just doubles down again. And he goes, he evokes a curse on himself and to swear. He says, cross my heart, hope to die. I don't know this man. Oh, the irony of those words. And if you notice, because he realized there must be some part of him realizes what he's doing and how bad he's doing doing it, 
he can't even say the name of Jesus. Verse 71, he says, this man. They're clearly saying, no, it's Jesus. You know Jesus. Jesus, the guy out there. He's saying, he can't even say his name. He just describes him as this man. And so what we have is we have Peter's repeated emphatic denial contrasted with Jesus' bold affirmation of truth. And Peter <coughs> has basically done what Jesus predicted. He has completely denied knowing Jesus, following Jesus, being with Jesus, have any connection of Jesus. And then in the midst of that, the hammer falls because it says the rooster crowed a second time. And just to make it very clear for us, the reader Mark writes, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, if you go back to Mark 14 verse 30, we can read it ourselves, but it says, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter had been as emphatic in his denial as he had been in his, no, that will never happen. They can all run away from you. They can all leave you. I will never do that, Lord. And now we've just seen utter and total failure on the part of Peter. And then we have those haunting words, the last few words of the passage. It says, and he broke down and wept. Peter had utterly failed his Lord. He'd utterly failed his friend. He'd been found guilty as charged. If there was a judge passing verdict on him, on his behavior, on his role as a disciple, one of the 12, he would have been found guilty and he would have been found wanting. And so we've had a trial with someone being found guilty, although they are innocent, and here someone being found guilty, rightly so, because he had royally failed. One commentator said this, Peter does not face a formal trial, nor is even questioned directly about his faith. He denies Jesus without ever using his name. Peter's example is a warning to disciples then and now that faithful witness to Jesus is most important and most easily betrayed in simple and ordinary actions and words. It is in everyday matters that disciples are true witnesses. And so what we've seen there in Mark, what he's laid out before us is this whole idea of being a witness, being on trial. And we've seen the true witness of Christ as the one who is faithful and the one who speaks truth and we have seen the failure of Peter in the face of accusations the one who would deny Christ and his response to that so a couple of bits of application that we'll do and then we will finish um, and I'll pray it says the first one Jesus is the one true witness at his trial Jesus is the one true witness in the face of hostile accusers Jesus remains true to who he is and he remains true to the mission he is on. He does not replay like for like, although he does have the power and authority to do so. He remains humble and committed to the will of his Father. We saw that last time in the passage when we were looking at Jesus praying in Gethsemane. He said, yet not my will but yours. He went through that process, but he committed himself to being obedient to the call of the Father on his life and his role as God the Son who would come and die for the sins of the world. In the midst of a world of lies, Jesus is the one who is the truth and the one who speaks the truth. Jesus testifies to himself. He is 
the Son of God, God the Son, who came to earth to save humanity. He is the one about whom everything is good and right and true. He is the chosen one who has come to lead his people to salvation. He is the one who will die on a cross in our place for our sin, rise bodily from death, ascend into heaven, and is ruling and reigning right now at the right hand of the Father, and will one day return to judge all mankind. And his call goes out to everyone to repent of their sin, to put their faith and trust in him, to come follow him all the days of their lives. And in a world where everyone is yelling at what they think the truth is, people peddling false narratives and the like, Jesus is the one person who stands alone above it all as the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who's it all about. If you're not a Christian here, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to implore you today to say, put your faith and trust in him. He is the only one who is true. He is the only one who's right. He is the only one who can bring purpose and salvation in his life. He is the only one who deals with the central problem of humanity, which is our failure before a holy and righteous God and our need for salvation. He's the one who loves you, who came to die for you and calls you now to follow him. If you are a Christian here and you are a follower of Jesus, we need to net to know Jesus because, for many reasons, one, because he is the truth. He is the one who speaks the truth. He is the one who represents all truth. And so as we learn about him, as we read our Bibles, and as we get into God's word, that's how we learn about the truth that faces us against the world outside, which is trying to conform and shape us into culture. There are narratives swirling around in culture that are ever-changing, and they're pushing us one way. But what they're all doing is they're all pushing us away from God, pushing us towards ourself. We can make our own truth. We can do our own stuff. And this hasn't changed throughout human history. We want to be in charge. We want to be in control. But the only way we find out the truth, the combat, the lies, is to know the truth. And the truth is perfectly represented in Christ, and that is revealed to us through his word, the Bible, which we are to read. So as believers here, we need to be men and women who are soaking ourselves in God's truth, who are reading the word of God, who are learning it, who are studying it, who are singing it and praying it, because that is the only place to find it. And that is how we teach us how to live this life the way God would have us, that we may flourish in him and serve him and honor him and glorify him. Second thing. We are to witness to Jesus in our trials. Peter had that opportunity there to be a witness for Jesus, but he failed under the pressure. And the reality is this. It's easy to be a witness to Jesus when things are going well. When you're among God's people. When the bands sound amazing. The preaching is dynamic. And you're surrounded by others that's we can yay Jesus but actually when we remove ourselves from here and we go out into the world the temperature goes up the pressure comes in and especially when we find ourselves alone Peter was alone in that situation he was the sole Christian there and I don't know if you've got a situation in your life where you know you are the only Christian in your school or college or workplace or social group or family or marriage. 
and the pressure then to live a certain way, act a certain way can be enormous. To speak like them, to act like them, to get involved in whether it's bad language or drinking or gossip or running others down, attitudes and priorities can be huge. They can be huge. Isolation can be hard and it can be dangerous, which is why we need the community of God's people to encourage us and pray for us. I remember when I started uh, teaching, um, I went into school working there, loved working there, loved teaching the class, but I suddenly realized the loneliness of being the Christian among those who are not. And the attitudes and the, the sort of the culture uh, sloshing around, it was so easy to slot in and so hard to stand out. And the school we worked in uh, it was quite a difficult school, a lot of um, uh, deprived, de- deprived sort of areas around and a lot of social need and stuff, which meant there was a lot to talk about. <laughs> there was a lot that you could get involved in. And it was, it was hard to be there and try to be a witness. But the only response I could have was I would pray and then I would gather my community when I went to my life group in the week and say, could you pray for me in this situation that I might be a witness that I would not fail, that I might be filled with the Spirit to keep going. And that is, that is a reminder for us that we are to be men and women, one, filled with the Spirit, two, part of God's community, that we may love and serve and care for one another. Because when we are facing loss and we are facing pressure, because Peter was under pressure because he would face loss of reputation, loss of faith, possibly even loss of freedom, even loss of life. He didn't know what was coming. If he said, yes, I'm a Jesus follower, surrounded by the crowd of people who just arrested Jesus, he didn't know what was going to happen. But our responsibility in this world as believers and followers of Jesus is to proclaim him. That's what we're here for. We're not here to pay off the mortgage, to make sure we get a good holiday and our kids get in the right school. Not that any of them are bad per se. Our responsibility is to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them everything Jesus has taught us through his word. That is what we are to do. And so we are on a mission as God's people to proclaim his name. So what happens when we do fail, which we inevitably will, like Peter? Well, the good news is that's not the end of Peter's story in a sobbing, broken heap that he found himself in. Because we know as we read on in the Gospels, Jesus came to him. Jesus restored him. Jesus brought him back into the family. Jesus forgave him for his sin. Uh, Peter had repented of what had happened. And then we find, go forward a few chapters into the book of Acts We find Peter with the gathered church when the spirit fell in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. The church was born and we find this man transformed by the power of the spirit standing up in front of hundreds, thousands, proclaiming the name of Jesus. And if we follow his life through, we find out actually ultimately he he did cross his heart and hope to die because he died on a cross for believing Jesus in Rome. That's what church history tells us. So he was transformed. And so when we fail, we can come to Jesus. We can find forgiveness for our sins. We can put our faith and trust in him. We can be filled with the Spirit, and we can go again. But we need to be men and women filled with the Spirit 
so that we can proclaim the name of Jesus and live it out. We need to recognize when we fail and we have failed. Some of you have even failed recently and you know it and it's uncomfortable talking about it. That is an opportunity then to come to Jesus and say, forgive me and to have Jesus restore you because that's what he does because he loves you and he is for you and be filled with the Spirit to go again and to proclaim the name of Jesus. Amen? Do you want to stand up? Can a band come up? We're going to pray and then we're going to sing and we'll see what happens. Just going to lead you um, for a moment. Maybe you just want to close your eyes, open your hands. I want to start by acknowledging, Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you are the one true witness. You are the one who is faithful and true. You are the one who came and testified to yourself. You are God the Son. You are the one who came to earth. You are the chosen one. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of Man. You are the one whose all authority and power has been given to you. You are the one who died on a cross, rose bodily from death, ascended into heaven, rule and reigns now, and sent the Holy Spirit to be with your people, the church. We thank you are here. You are here by your presence amongst us. Lord God, I want to pray and ask that you would forgive us when we fail, which we so often do. So often we're like Peter, under pressure, we cave. And if you know these things now, just get them right before God. Confess them. Ask for forgiveness. And God will cleanse you from all unrighteousness, it says, 1 John 1, 8 and 9. And I'm just going to pray also, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit. That we would be men and women who go out into the world into our homes and into our schools and into our workplaces and into our social groups, even when we write on social media, that we will be men and women who proclaim your truth. Proclaim you, not ourselves, but point to you and say you are the way, the truth, and the life. It's all about you, Lord Jesus. And so as we lift up your name now in seeing God, we pray you fill us afresh that we may know you we may know your presence in our lives. And God's people said,